0: involved heavily in the slave trade, taking slaves from the point of capture to the point of purchase. Vulgar, corrupt. But he had a godly mom who was praying for his salvation. One time upon the sea, a great storm arose, and he thought for sure that he would lose his life. Remembering his mother's prayers and some of the verses that she had taught him, he cried out to God for deliverance. And God saved him, and he gave his heart and soul to the Lord. Being a poet at heart, he did what many Christian poets did. They would write a conversion song, and John Newton wrote his conversion song that has become the popular anthem and America's hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It is interesting to me that in some versions, that phrase, a wretch like me, has been changed. Apparently, the wording a little too strong for some, but John Newton knew exactly what he was like. But I think it's important for us to remember that grace is so amazing when, first of all, we realize it comes from a God who's not obligated to be gracious, but secondly, grace is amazing. It's astounding when you consider the object, the undeserving sinner. The recipient of God's grace cannot earn it. That's why it is called grace. And this wonderful story of God's shocking grace runs through the pages of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It is indeed the story that fills the Bible and makes it a a book of grace. And there's an Old Testament story that highlights this grace in a pretty astounding way. It is the life of a rather obscure character, and we find him mentioned in 2 Samuel. King Saul and his son Jonathan... Died in battle fighting the Philistines in the Valley of Jezreel. They took their last stand on Mount Gilboa, their lifeless bodies pinned to the walls of Beth Shan so all could see the Philistine victory. News quickly reached the palace in Gibeah, and pandemonium ensued. Terror struck every heart of the people in that land, and now the new royal family would be targeted. There was little time to gather their treasures and collect their children, and run for their lives. The Alpère, the royal nanny, grabbed Jonathan's son, a five-year-old prince, and began to run. Her cries must have hurt his ears, and her sobs, tears must have covered his face. What did the little boy of five years old know except that this was a horrible day? Something dreadful had happened. In the hasty escape, the nanny dropped the young prince and he fell. He might have fallen on the hard pavement of the palace floor and perhaps quickly her the weight of her body fell upon his feet because his ankles broke and he became paralyzed for life. She gathered up the crying boy as pain, incredible pain, coursed through his body and began to run again. There was no physician to set the bones properly. I'm guessing a five-year-old might have had some memories, some vivid memories of early life, but here was a day he would never forget the scriptures describe it like this in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Let's simply call this the day of the fall. Mephibosheth, injured for life, living in fear. By the way, it's quite possible that his early name was Mary Baal. It's a name that means Baal, the foreign god, is my advocate. And you say, why would Jonathan give his son a name of an idol god? Well, you may remember, as families immigrated to the U.S. in the 17, 18, early 1900s, they would often change their family name, their ethnic name, to protect their children in the New World, to protect them from racial bias. It's quite possible that this name was given to Mephibosheth because the Philistines ruled the land and his family wanted to protect him. So here he is, severely injured because of the fall. Injured forever. And by the way, if the name Maribol means Baal is my advocate, the name Mephibosheth that he took up, maybe a nickname given to him, means a shameful thing. You don't have to think too long or imagine too deeply to see this is a picture of of people everywhere, of people who have rebelled against God, of sinners like you and me. That means the whole world. The theologians call the rebellion of Adam in Genesis chapter three, the fall, and its consequences are eternal. They're devastating injured forever and we become that shameful thing. But I believe that this young man's life is designed not to show us so much of our tragic condition, although that's part of it. It's designed to show us God's great grace. It's not that we are to be merely sympathetic to this poor young lad, but we are we're to see how his life is radically changed as the Lord enters in. I imagine Mephibosheth as a young boy was in hiding with his whole family. That was the new norm for them. They were hiding from the Philistines because the Philistines would go after any part of the royal family. It was customary for a king to execute anyone who stood between him and his throne, foreign rulers, especially those of the royal line. So Mephibosheth and his family were hiding. The Bible tells us that they uh, probably, they went from place to place, but landed in a place called Lodabar, which literally means barren. It was a wasteland. It was on the east side of the Jordan River, about 15 miles northeast from where Mephibosheth's dad, Jonathan, died on Mount Gilboa. It was a place where many people didn't live. They could hide there. They found lodging in the house of one maker who must have been a sympathetic man, kind. He gave them lodging and protection. Maybe he was a patriot to the old royal line. But there... They hid. And they lived in fear. You think about it fear of the next knock on the door that this would be the opposing enemy forces come to dismantle and execute the royal family. Imagine Mephibosheth, a young prince, having everything he wanted in life and then suddenly loses everything from prosperity to poverty. From being energetic and healthy to a cripple for the rest of his life. From enjoying peace to living in constant fear and shame. His good life was changed in an instant. You know, that's the way it is with life and tragedy in this fallen world. Sin has its consequences. Sin has its consequences in human death we all experience it. Sin has its consequences in broken relationships and disease, in horrible accidents that happen to very good people. But remember, we are all sinners and this world has been defiled by sin. And in an instant, what used to be a good life can radically be changed. The nation of Israel was divided at this time. The Philistines were in the land, but in the north, the little nation of Israel had a new ruler, Ishbosheth, who happened to be the uncle of Mephibosheth. He was a, a weak man, a puppet king. People were anxious and were fearful. But in the south, the king was a young man named David. The king over Judah in Benjamin, his capital was in Hebron, and Mephibosheth, although not old enough, when his dad died, must have heard stories later about his dad and his granddad, King Saul. King Saul had a love hate relationship with David. He loved him when David became part of the army and And defeated the enemies and he hated him when he realized that David was going to be the new king to replace him. One time King Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. Other times he hunted him down like an animal in the Judean wilderness and then he would praise him for his military exploits as the people would sing Saul has slain his thousands but David his ten thousands. For all Mephibosheth knew, David was now his enemy. Because remember, a new king customarily executes everyone from the old royal family. And Mephibosheth was next in line after his granddad and his dad. But Mephibosheth would have heard stories about his dad Jonathan, how he loved David. They were the best of friends. If you want to understand what friendship really is about, study and read the story of these two young men who were so close, kindred spirits. David even married into Saul's family. But now, what would Mephibosheth do? As we go through the story in Second Samuel we come to Second Samuel chapter 3 in verse 1 where it says the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Mephibosheth in his teens now understood the fear, understood his plight, understood that his family and his house were wasting away and his time was short. In 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 10, we read that David became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I don't know that Mephibosheth knew about this, but God said to David, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I'm going to raise up your offspring, someone who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom and his throne forever. I will be his father. He will be my son, and my love will never be taken away from him like it was Saul. And here's a wonderful prophecy from 2 Samuel 7 about the Lord Jesus Christ. We call it the Davidic Covenant. It refers to the coming Messiah. And Jesus Christ is the one who rules on David's throne. And he is the one who comes to save us from our sins. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 13, David became famous as he defeated all of his enemies around him. For the Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. Now imagine with me, as David became more powerful, Mephibosheth became more fearful. A teenager living in a violent world with a bullseye on his back, there were few days that were truly restful and quiet. The years of obscurity perhaps were bearable, if not distinguished. He was able to find a place and carve out a life for himself. He married. He had a son. He adjusted to life in the shadows. But the effects of the fall could not be erased. And every day he remembered what had happened to him. Every day he remembered who he was. Every day he felt that he was condemned. Simply waiting for the day of judgment. And then, strangers knocked on the door and disrupted his salute, his secluded life. At the door was a familiar face, Ziba, his grandfather's servant. Ziba opened the door and he said, we're looking for Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, Son of Saul, is he here? And with great intrepidation, I'm sure he answered, Yes, I am here. The king, King David, has ordered you, summon you to appear in his presence at once. Come with us. And that's all he heard. We'll call this the day of the call. The call, the summons, the order to appear before the king. I'm sure his heart was pounding with fear, expecting the worst. He was about 21 years old now and well knew what was going to happen. This meant his death. He tearfully bid his family goodbye, convinced he would never see them again. And then was carried by the king's caravan some 60 miserable miles to Jerusalem. And he had a lot of time to think. Mephibosheth was no threat to King David. He was crippled. He was flawed. And often flawed people were simply eliminated. And maybe that was going to happen because of his injuries. But no, he was next in line from Saul's family. And there was no other reason for David to call him but to kill him. Time to think about his plight and every jawing bump on the road caused more pain and more shame. And now we turn to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you have your scriptures, I hope you turn there to this wonderful book before unbeknownst, unbeknownst to Mephibosheth, David had a radically different aim in mind. He didn't want to eliminate him. He wanted to elevate him. We read in chapter 9, verse 1, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? You see, the king sought him out to show him kindness. The king showered upon him the kindness of God for the sake of another, for the sake of Jonathan. Because David loved Jonathan so much, he wanted to show that same love and kindness to his family. There was a servant, verse 2 says, from Saul's household named Ziba. He's the one who informed the king. Yes, there is one still left, verse 3 He is a cripple, the son of Jonathan. But I want you to note in verse 3, David says, where is someone from the house of Saul so I can show him God's kindness? The word kindness is found three times in this chapter, and it's described as the kindness of God, which now gives us the discovery of the main heart of the story, The reason for his biography to appear on the pages of Holy Scripture is so that you and I can see the kindness of God revealed to someone so undeserving. David's mission was kindness, and his motive? For the sake of another. The great gospel story tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life God loves us but it's for the sake of his son that he saves us it's Jesus who pays for our penalty it's Jesus who redeems us so we read in verse 5 King David had Mephibosheth brought to him one of the old translations says fetch him And he came from Lodabar, from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel. And imagine when Mephibosheth walked into that brilliant, magnificent palace with cedar and gorgeous stone, intimidating, taken to a room to get cleaned up because he wasn't fit to go into the presence of a king, only to feel that he would be cleaned up to lose his life. And then when he comes into the presence of the king, verse 6 says that he bowed down to pay him honor. The Hebrew word can easily be translated, fell on his face. That's a hard thing for a cripple to do. A painful thing to do. Though he paid him honor and respect face down. Mephibosheth, David said, I am your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, verse 7 says. I will show you kindness. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at my table. He responded in a very humble way. Verse 8. Says, Who am I? What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? You know, that sounds a little bit like amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. While some people's sins, uh, very obvious and grotesque and seemingly so far uh, to a degree worse than other people, you and I may think that we are pretty good, that we have not sinned, but all have sinned and all come short of the glory of God and all are under just punishment to be condemned save for the sake of Jesus who died for sinners that we could be rescued. And so then the king says in verse 9 to Ziba, Saul's servant, I want you and your sons to take the land that would have been Jonathan's had he not died. I've now given it to his son. And I want you to cultivate that land and bring in the harvest for Mephibosheth. And he will eat at my table always. In fact, verse 11 says, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Four times it says that he ate at his table. What abundant blessings are given in this chapter to Mephibosheth that mirror the abundant blessings given to the sinner who humbles himself before the throne of God and receives the grace offered to us for Jesus' sake. His life was spared. He was rescued. He was given peace instead of fear. He was given an inheritance, the land that was owned to Jonathan. He was adopted like a son and forever ate at the king's table. Incredible abundance, amazing abundance is given to him I think it was Lorne Sanny who years ago was president of the Navigators. And one time he was sharing John 3.16 with someone, the verse I just quoted, for God so loved the world, the verse you know well. And this man responded, I'm so tired of you Christians always quoting John 3.16. I bet you don't even know John 3.17. And Lorne Sanny happened to know it and he quoted that verse for him. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. Verse 16. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus came into the world not to condemn us. We were condemned already. He came to rescue us by dying in our place. And the incredible kindness of God is offered to the undeserving. That's the heart of this amazing story. Shocking grace. And I suppose one of the best things for Mephibosheth was simply this. When he sat at the king's table, the tablecloth of the king's kindness covered his crippled feet. And he was now adopted as one of the king's sons. you might remember if you lived in the 60s and 70s that uh, an old gospel hymn became very popular. It was recorded in 1968 by the Edward Hawkins family band. They, were, they played uh, gospel music, had won golden records I believe, and this one just became a global hit. The title of it was, Oh Happy Day. I was a young Christian And I remember that the civil rights movement picked it up and the Jesus movement of the late 60s and early 70s picked it up and it was on every radio station. Oh, happy day. (laughs) Some of you might remember the song from the movie Sister Act Two. 1993, when Whoopi Goldberg played a a nun that led a high school choir into some marvelous dramatic songs. And one of their most amazing songs was, Oh, happy day! Oh, happy day that fixed my thoughts on thee, my Savior and my God! Oh, may this glowing heart rejoice and tell its raptures all abroad. Actually, that hymn was written way back in 1775 by a nonconformist minister, Philip Doddridge. He would preach sermons to his congregation and then, helping them to retain what he had taught, he put it in poetic form. He wrote out a hymn, and this was one of the hymns that would help them remember the gospel that he was proclaiming. However, in many of the more recent recordings of this grand hymn, we sometimes miss the amazing verses. Like this verse. "'Tis done the great transactions done. I am my Lord's, and he is mine. He drew me, and I followed on, charmed to confess the call divine. Now rest my long divided heart, fixed on this loving Savior rest. He said that we shall never part. His heavenly pleasures Fill my breast, O happy day. When Jesus washed my sins away, he taught me how to watch and pray. O happy day. It was kind of like his conversion hymn, much like John Newton's Amazing Grace. So if we have the day that we call the day of the fall, and then if there is the day of the call, The one brings on injuries that are indescribable. The second appears to be a call to judgment, but turns out to be a mercy. Then when we embrace his mercy, the last day is, oh, happy day, when my choice, by God's grace, was fixed on Jesus Christ. You're somewhere in this story. You've been affected by the fall of man, We're all sinners. And God has called you in his son, not to condemn you, but to rescue you. And if you believe, you can sing, oh, happy day. May that be true of you on this beautiful Sunday morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the stories in the Bible are not random biographies to somehow fascinate us or draw out from our heart great sympathy for those who are treated unjustly but to paint a picture of your kindness your indescribable amazing shocking grace that is offered to people so undeserving like me O Lord we embrace it today And may the tablecloth of your grace and kindness cover our sin forever. In Jesus' name, amen.